And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed, and sought out, and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Welcome to podcast number six of The Higher Calling, presented by the Avondale Church of God. In the last podcast, we left off talking about spiritual maturity, and we finished up Hebrews chapter five. Our prayer podcasts explored the first few chapters of Hebrews, and so far, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to take an opportunity to break up this series, though, because we have a discussion about what does the Bible say about choosing a church to attend and what to look for before choosing to become a member there. This really is a great opportunity to review some Bible basics so that we can have them fresh in our minds when we get to the next few chapters in Hebrews. So, First, some philosophy of religion. If you are listening to a podcast about Christianity, which, if you haven't figured it out yet, you are, it might be an easy assumption that you are either already a believer or you are exploring the concept and might be ready to actually do something about it. Why not talk about any other religion? Why not spirituality in general? Why be particular at all? It's not too hard to find any particular flavor of religion, whatever suits your tastes, and just show up to church. Enjoy some entertainment, some good music, and maybe watch people do funny things. That's what this podcast is about. And we'll cover chapter and verse in a minute using our King James Version Bible. And we invite you to follow along. At some point, you've probably asked yourself, well, why am I here? And how did I get here? And how did here become to be in the first place? These are all deep questions. And I'm sure you have, maybe more subconsciously, but certainly, these questions are there. And furthermore, beyond just existing, there's a system of values that regulate our existence while we're here. So how do you bring all of those questions and the values system together and answer them in a meaningful way? Philosophers have worked on this for a very long time and will forever be doing so. And hence, all manner of religions and ideologies, that presents a problem for 
those of us who want to attend church in a meaningful way beyond entertainment. Because there's so many different flavors of church. We all know that there's an imaginary best case scenario, and we'd strive to do better and to get it right and to live up to our best possible potential. You know, that's not an accident. Some call it the is-ought paradox. We see things as they are, and more often than not, aren't content with that. We realize that these things can be better. Additionally, not only should things be better than they are, but we also know that there are dire consequences for getting it wrong, misbehavior. We don't even have to look necessarily to the Bible for evidence of this. We all make sacrifices today in order to make life easier on our future selves without having to be taught. Even in nature, animals and plants prepare for famine, winter, and respect hierarchies that make life more sustainable for them. But the value system works the same way because of the pain and guilt that is so hard to live with. We avoid punishment, whether intrinsic or extrinsic, at all costs. And we all enjoy the glow that comes from good deeds, such as human kindness. And we love the confidence instilled after correctly making hard decisions. The atheists and Darwinists and Scientologists, Buddhists, Muslims, all the other ists and isms and anities other than Christianity have their reasons and descriptions and logical arguments. But what they don't have is a single way to tie all of it together while also satisfying the values constraint. While we're at it here, there are many different Christian churches that are in this Christian category that can't do this either, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The values constraint is all mankind is born with a conscience, and it regulates how we conduct our life. Until that conscience is becomes non-functional by training out of feeling bad for poor judgment, it's a common experience, and we are by nature taught to treat one another like we would like to be treated. We all had consciences well before the Bible was ever written. Fairness, equity, kindness, love, patience, and on and on are all non-quantifiable values that are inherited ideas that don't really need to be taught. Some are refined by learning, of course, but we know that values, some are good, and we also know what are bad without being taught. The thesis or point here is that Christianity codifies all of this into a system that works. Except for one disclaimer, the most fulfilled life is a Christian life. And the disclaimer here is actually in the Bible itself, James 4 and 17. It says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This makes allowance for those people in history and in the future 
that will never know about God or Jesus, or their lives are extinguished before they ever have to make a values-based decision, or never will have the mental acuity to be accountable for anything. With that being said, if you are listening to this podcast and are old enough to understand the words I'm saying, you most likely don't fit into that category. So we're moving right along here. Why should we care? Why don't we just violate our value system? And since life is short, live a life pleasing to our own self. Running over others, lying, cheating, stealing. Why should we care about having a good reputation? This is all about free will. We can choose to be good or we can choose to be bad. It's within our power. Free will is a sadly contested idea, and we'll circle back around to this a little later on. But like we said before, our conscience is only as good as it is cultivated. We all start at a young age calibrating the way we live our life, and this can be exploited. We can reason our way out of having a sensitive conscience. There are two good answers to why we should not override our conscience. First, we will become unloved, bitter, depressed, and suffer other consequences of violating social contracts. And second, our life is more fulfilled when we have responsibilities that we are actually keeping. The Bible explains why this works, and we're going to start introducing more biblical concepts as we go forward now and move away from simply philosophic or anecdotal ideas. Our first scripture, we read this as our introduction, came from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's go back and read verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You want to know why you feel bad when you do something wrong? Of course you do want to know why. You want to know why you're searching for answers? Of course you do, and you want to find those answers. Animals don't. Why do people? The Bible explains why God started all of this to begin with. The duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Therefore, we have a conscience. We have an immortal soul, as the Bible will teach us. And our conscience helps us regulate the way we live our life. Because verse 14, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Well, why did God start the ball rolling in the beginning with the perfect place for man to survive? and walk with Adam in the garden. Well, I'm not God, and I don't pretend to have some new light or a vision or anything like that. Just like you, I open my Bible to get some answers, and I read that God wants people to worship him, and it brings God pleasure when people do so in the right way. If you go back in your Bible, you'll see that it, it brings God pleasure when people burned sacrifices, and that he was angry 
when people did things he told them not to do. The ideas and concepts like righteousness and purity have always been requirements throughout the entire Bible for living pleasing to God. And the opposite, the uncleanness, the lawlessness, sin, and unbelief are things that caused God to destroy people. It really is that simple. The Bible explains that God knows people are weak and that we, by nature, will try to do things that please our own animal-like selves. And we would do things like worshiping imaginary gods or worshiping our own self. The Bible explains that God only wants to be worshiped alone and not some other false representation of God, not a God-like substitute. Also, it explains God cares about how he is worshiped. Still using the scripture we opened with, we find that he has commandments. God's commandments as written and inspired by God, not individual interpretation of those commandments. How does it happen that we even have to have a topic about choosing a church, avoiding versions of the Bible that have been changed and corrupted? Well, this is, this is why. As people, we like to be followed. We like to be listened to. We can be power-hungry, egotistical maniacs that come up with ideas just to gain a following. And church history is full of tribalism, denominationalism, hierarchic regimes, and bad actors. You can follow the trail of blood and see where different individuals exploited the baser natures of others in the name of religion and come up with new expressions of faith. The Bible separates these into two categories called truth and error. Naturally, as truth is an expression of purity, there can only be one truth, but there can be many, many different ways to get it wrong. So why should we care about what and how we worship as long as we have something that we worship? And how can we have confidence in our Bible that it is the word of God? So the Bible was compiled and collaborated and put together in the way we have it today over time. You can, on your own, go look up how the Bible that we have today came about. It's pretty close to being perfectly translated. And the canonical works, all of the books of the Bible, were chosen for a reason. And I believe they were preserved in the form it is today by providential influence. I'm using my personal faith to come to that conclusion. Well, what is faith? If we read Hebrews chapter 11, it explains all about faith and why faith works, why it's necessary. And then Galatians chapter 3 is a great extension of that. But in essence, it is simply knowing something to be true without having any proof that it may be true. And I quote, evidence of things hoped for, substance 
of things not seen. It sounds pretty risky, right? Well, it is. It's very, very critical to look at the effects of someone's faith on their life before you start following them, before you choose to attend their church. And you need to literally judge the results of their faith before you sign up for their cause. It's life and death. The consequences are severe. We don't play church here. There are forces of evil beyond our comprehension that we are to avoid at all costs. Better open your Bible. Bring your Bible to church and make sure that perhaps the special speaker for the day is preaching correctly and maybe even more importantly, after church, living properly outside the pulpit. Faith or your belief system regulates more than just your social contracts. Do you want to have a happy home? Of course. Do you want to find a fulfilling career? Absolutely. And maybe look at this, the other side of the coin. King David wrote a psalm that described the life he lived before he turned to God for help. And he called it a horrible pit and miry clay. What sort of decisions have made your life miserable? There's no way that you can say you made the right decision to, and, and you can name a laundry list of bad decisions that we all have participated in in the past. It, it's never okay to cheat on your wife, get addicted to drugs, rob the liquor store, or cheat on your math test. Temporary pleasure may lead to long-term pain. So what does the Bible say about faith and religion? Because that's where we need to turn to to get our answers and to get our direction. And I'm going to, in addition to using more Bible scriptures for the rest of this conversation, also start referring to different perspectives on Christian principles and stack those perspectives against what does the Bible really have to say about it. We are all aware of church history. And to discuss faith and religion, let's go to Martin Luther and the Reformation away from Catholicism. While I do this, keep in mind that the Lutheran church went through many changes over the last 500 years, and today actually looks much like the Catholic church does. Maybe full circle back to its roots. If you use the King James Version Bible, the content hasn't changed too much in the last 2,000 years, other than the language it's written in. And we'll use the same scriptures that Martin Luther had when he learned some things about faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is a very exciting topic because this represents the tipping point for one of history's greatest reformers. ChristianStudyLibrary.org has an excerpt of Martin Luther's own account, which I will read here. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that 
quote, the just shall live by his faith, unquote. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the quote, justice of God, unquote, had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That is an amazing, an amazing experience of enlightenment. And we're all going to have a different maybe come to Jesus moment is how we could describe it, where the light bulb comes on and it's useful to see it happen in someone else so that you can recognize it when it happens to you. Well, how does this work? Where does faith come from? The Bible teaches us that everybody gets some faith when we are born, enough faith to start us out on our search, enough to take the spark of a conscience and our curious nature and start putting two and two together to get to God, to start asking questions and reading books and in some unknown and unreasoned out way to ask for God for help, even if we don't know the first thing about how to pray. Then we learn some stuff about God and it resonates. It makes sense. There are many such moments where the light bulb comes on and then we have to make some changes about the lifestyle we live and the things that we allowed in the past that we feel so bad about now. All of this usually happens without ever picking up a Bible. But then somewhere in this process, we get a pulling, a tugging from God. Many people testify to having visions of attending church, seeing angels, visions of hell, voices in their head, unrest and difficulty falling asleep at night. Somewhere in this process, God is finally able to communicate with us. And the first thing that he uses is our conscience. Proof that God exists was with us from the day we first began to reason about right and wrong. Well, what is this unrest? It's a calling. You have been chosen by God to be one of his people. God wants you to worship him. Who gets this calling? Is it some exclusive group of people and perhaps some other people won't get a calling? Is it only 144,000 people that are going to be part of God's church? Is it just a bloodline of people called Jews? Why even answer this calling at all? We're just going to go to the Bible and read it for ourselves. The Bible has to be the bottom line, the foundation of your Christian faith, the standard that you measure your faith by. You can have supplemental studies, You can listen to fancy speakers and read pamphlets and books, but at the end of the day, you need to go to the Bible to see what it says. If you are going to be a Christian, 
you must read your Bible. So story time. If you open your Bible somewhere in the middle of Genesis, you are going to read about a man named Abram and how God changed his name to Abraham and promised that he was going to have so many descendants that you just couldn't count them. He promised Abram that one day he will live in a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, Abram believed it when God told him all of those promises, and it literally came true. Abram had a son named Isaac and a son named Ishmael. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob wrestled an angel, had his name changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons. There was a famine where they lived, and Jacob and his 12 sons ended up living in Egypt, where that whole family grew to like 2 million people. Well, one of those kids' name was Moses, and he was tasked by God to bring all of those people out of Egypt. He was tasked with delivering the Ten Commandments to all of those people, as well as like 600 other rules and regulations. Those people were Israelites, named after their patriarch, and later on became known as Jews. Well, Jews got a little too used to the idea of God's promise to Abraham, and they did eventually settle in a land flowing with milk and honey, but the Bible records that they were really bad at sticking to good habits, and actually kept repeatedly worshiping false gods, and then God kept punishing them by having them conquered and oppressed by outside tribes. And the history tells us, and the Bible tells us and corroborates this, that they were conquered by Assyrians and the Medo-Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and eventually the Roman Empire. God sent visions to Jewish people called prophets and warned them over and over again that his original promise to Abraham was going to have to be extended to more people than just the Jewish bloodline because they wouldn't consistently worship God. Well, it came true. A man named Jesus was born, and the Bible teaches us that he was an extension of God, God with us, born in a little town called Bethlehem. And he was going to have a new expression of religion. He was going to change it, fulfill it. So not only Jews were going to be God's chosen people by bloodline, but also Greeks, Samaritans, Ethiopians, everybody was going to have a chance to have a part. Not just 144,000 people, not just some exclusive club. Let's read four scriptures about this. Luke 16 and 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Acts 11 and 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Acts 20 verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, 
repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, so we're going to keep building on these concepts. Let's pull out the phrase, not willing that any should perish, and also all should come to repentance. So first, perish. Adam and Eve were the first people that God made. They had a beautiful place to live, with plenty of things to eat, safety, and by all accounts, no pain, no age, no suffering, or death. Well, God gave them one rule, and that rule is to leave a particular tree alone. Don't eat the fruit of this particular tree. Don't even touch it, lest they die. If they didn't leave it alone, they would surely die. So naturally, being people, they ate the fruit of the tree, perhaps just to see if it would really happen. The fact is that God meant a different kind of death, and they really did die that death. It introduced the idea that there is a life and a death beyond our physical body, and teaches us that we have a soul, and our soul can suffer spiritual death. There's a physical death when our body dies, and there's a judgment day, where either our soul gets eternal life or eternal punishment. So God doesn't want that to happen to anybody, and it's his will that we all come to repentance. However, God is also a just God, and the word just implies that if there are consequences, then those consequences will be administered. So clearly, if there's no repentance, then there will be a death. Revelations 21 verse 8 clarifies, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's literally in plain text that if it is God's will that all should come to repentance, why? Because the Bible teaches us about this afterlife, which sounds not so great for any soul that gets punished. So how do we not get punished? Let's carry on and read in John chapter 3. This is a very popular scripture about Jesus' purpose. John 3, verse 16 and verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is such an incredible thing that God would be willing to forgive the sins and wrongdoing of each one of us. And there are no small sins or great sins in the eyes of God. Romans 3, 23 through 25, 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. I'm going to use some dictionaries and Greek and English translations for some definitions. Propitiation is the act of appeasing or making well-disposed a deity, thus incurring divine favor or avoiding divine retribution. Jesus did that for us. Remission is a cancellation of debt or penalty, and forbearance is undeserved mercy. How does it work? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Skipping to verses 13 and 14. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So that answers a few important questions that we asked earlier. Why Christianity and not an Eastern religion or Islam? We need to call on the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to have our sins forgiven, to get a life that can be right with God, and to be ready for this upcoming judgment day. So let's bring this full circle. You have this pulling that won't stop, this longing to be complete, a sense that things just aren't okay in your little world. What do you do about it? Self-help books, okay, that's fine. You learn how to make your bed in the morning, and improve your life in some way. Alcohol Anonymous. Okay, that's fine. So you learn how to fight cravings and develop good habits. The Bible asks, who shall deliver me? That's why we open the Bible. That's why we are looking for the right church, not just entertainment. And when we find it, it's so satisfying that we never want to go back. Real results real long-term lasting deliverance. That's why. It's really been a pleasure. We trust that you found the discussion challenging and encouraging. And as always, thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or would like to contact us for any other reason, please visit www.ceasesinning.com or email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org. We'd love to hear from our audience and we'd be happy to further any discussion or pray for a need that you may be experiencing. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.